You're about to join Niels Kostrup Larsen on a raw and honest journey into the world of systematic investing and learn about the most dependable and consistent yet often overlooked investment strategy. Welcome to the Systematic Investor Series. Welcome or welcome back to this week's edition of the Systematic Investor Series with Katie Kaminsky, Jim Kazang, Rob Carver, Mark Resipsinski, Rich Brennan, Alan Dunn, Nick Baltus, Andrew Beer, and I, Niels Kastroblasen. As you can tell from this introduction, today as well as last week's episode are very special because it's the first time all nine of us are together for one big conversation and debate. As you may remember, we did unfortunately due to some technical issues lose Rich during our recording, so that will explain why they are not so active in today's conversation. But without further ado, let's continue our conversation where we left off last week. I know that uh, Rob already stole one of your topics, but I, your list was pretty long, so hopefully you have some of th- something else. Well, I think, look, I th- first of all, this is, I mean, I think just going back to, I guess, the question that I would ask, we're trying to define trend following. I'd be curious how people define non-trend because, you know, back when we started in 2015, uh, you know, machine learning was a big thing. And then it was, and now it's, you know, then it went to counter trends and it went, and it seems like it, there's a sort of catch-all for non-trend strategies. I guess I would really turn it back to the group and say, how do you define that side of it? All right. Well, Alan, you are the one person that has allocated to non-trend, I think. So uh, how does that feel? Yeah. And I mean, I think there's a pretty decent understanding of the taxonomy in the industry overall. I mean, I think some strategies tend to fall between the cracks a little bit. But I mean, to answer Andrew's question, I think when we talk about trend following, there is an inherent assumption that one, it's uh, price-based. So price is your primary input. Secondly, we're talking about medium to long-term time frame. Uh, and, and, and thirdly, we're talking about, obviously, trading in the direction of the prevailing medium to long-term trend. So thinking about strategies that, that don't uh, fit within that, so say short-term strategies. So I think generally we understand short-term systematic strategies to be strategies that are of a time frame of intraday out to maybe five-day possibly a little bit longer, maybe eight days average hold period. So they're distinct from trend following in terms of that time frame. Now you could be following trend following momentum strategies, but if you're pursuing them over that very short-term time frame, generally people think about them as short-term strategies as opposed to trend following strategies. So they're still kind of in the, the non-trend category. The second thing then, obviously in terms of the input, if your inputs are non-price inputs, then that puts you into other categories like quant macro. So if you're looking at uh, either, you know, market data such as yield curves or yields, et cetera, or you're actually looking at economic time series. uh, And, you know, I suppose recently we've had the idea of economic trend following, but but even to keep the trend part of that out out, out of the argument, but but certainly non-price, i.e. market or economic time series being part of your input, well, that puts you into more of a of 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 a, a quant macro, and then obviously the third bit is if you're not actually trading in the direction of the trend, um, you know, then obviously it's, it's it, I mean, you're counter trend, so so that's very clearly non-trend as well. So so that's three very clear categories. I mean, obviously you can also have uh, 
traders who are discretionary and uh, and they could be trend followers. So a lot of macro traders are effectively trend followers, but they they manage their risks differently. They're not they're not systematic. They, their their portfolios aren't as diversified. So they're not trading fifty two hundred markets. But you know if you if you speak to a lot of uh, macro traders, very often they'll make a lot of their gains from one or two big trades in the year where they capture a big move. So it is trend following in in terms of philosophy, but it is differentiated from trend in terms of the discretionary input. So I guess when we think of trend, it's systematic, medium-term, price-based, and in the direction of the trend. And if you're not doing that, you're doing something non-trend in in some shape or form. So I think there's a fairly reasonable understanding. Sometimes you find strategies that are maybe 10 to 20-day average hold. Is that short-term? Is it trend-following? Um you know, it is, and then obviously you have the, the hybrid strategies where have which have trend and non-trend. So where do they fit in? But but that'd be my perception on, on it. See, I would say one of the things I've been going back to to what what Katie was saying about preference functions. I think one of the things that's interesting about trend as an allocation is that there's a sense of permanence to it. That you can look at it over seventy years, you can model it in all sorts of different ways, and you feel like this is something. And and the thing is, you know, for asset allocators who are building capital markets assumptions and going back to Nick point, Nick's point about having an index, you need, somebody needs to decide what they think a strategy is going to do over time. And in hedge fund land, and, you know, we know these things change a lot over time. Uh, you know, you model equity long short in 2005. It's very different than how you would model equity long short today. You know, I think one of the interesting things about the distinction between trend and trend is that trend should be more predictable in that it should reflect some underlying economic rationale as to why you're able to extract excess returns at very specific moments in time, uh, in, in particular, but not get killed the rest of the time. Whereas the non-trend stuff, I think, on the other hand, it can sound really, really appealing because it sounds often sounds great. I think it's just hard to, to, to say, I wish I'd been doing this in 1972. And so, and for, so for long-term alligators, I think one of the challenges for the space and going back to kind of the the, the language on it, um, you know, Katie coined one of the best terms on the space, which is crisis alpha. And so I was shamelessly copying that for a while and and, and attributing it to it. But the problem, as I found, is that people then made this alloc- their allocation a tactical call. And if there hadn't been a crisis in six months, because and it, it wasn't just whether how they were making a decision to add it to their portfolio, it's that they were communicating the rationale for putting this weird, complicated thing in their portfolios to their clients as basically something that was going to make money in the next six months because the world was going to fall apart. The world doesn't fall apart. And the clients are saying, well, why do we still have it? And so I think part of the challenge is around the language and the definitions and everything else is to understand the audience of the people who, because there are a lot of people who will listen to this call and, and, and you're talking to a receptive audience. But the space hasn't grown in 10 years. And I think part of the reason is because the language is really intimidating. And the description of products is really intimidating to a lot of people out there who control a lot of money. Anyway, so I'm the I'm, I'm the guy who's trying to do it in English. I love that. Katie, I'd love I to mean, hear what you think. The most interesting thing that happened to me in the last year or so, I had one client that came in and said to me, and I thought this was a very interesting way to put it, is... They were saying, you know, we know that the world is changing now. We know that the macro environment is uncertain and that there's a lot of change, whether it's crisis, whatever it is, there's change coming. Um, Inflation has returned and our portfolios don't like it. But we like trend falling because 
if you think about macro trading, what I always thought was fascinating, macro trading is about 50%, global macro is 50% correlated with trend. And the reason for this is because trend and macro traders get into the same trades. They just get into them at different times. And so what this particular client said to me that I really appreciated is he said, you know, I've tried to source macro managers. It's so hard because it's hard to trade all of the macro themes out there. Like, how do you trade the yen trade perfectly and also trade, you know, what's going on in, in other parts of the globe and Arge Argentina and all this stuff? It's hard, right? So investing in a systematic trend portfolio is really about having a liquid global macro exposure where you're sort of capturing a good part of where the world is moving. Um, and when it moves a lot, no matter if it's from crisis or if it's from, you know, rising rates, you just want to be there as part of those moves. Yes, you're not going to pick the tops and the bottoms and you're not going to be prognosticating on what the trade is, but you're at least going to be in there in those moves and you're going to do it in a liquid way so that if the world changes, you have that exposure. And I thought that was a really interesting way to put it is really talking about how trend as a strategy is long macro uncertainty. And it's always going to be highly correlated to macro themes, no matter what they are. So if you want macro exposure in a liquid and less manager-specific and thesis-specific way, you add some of that liquid systematic exposure. And I thought that was a really nice point that he made. And, and um, you know, I, I'm saying it again because it was so good. <laughs> so. All right. I will jump to you, Mark, since you are up next. What, what have you brought along for our conversation? Well, only because we have such an uh, esteemed group of systematic managers beyond just trend following in the taxonomy. We've been having a number of discussions with, with clients and showing some, uh, some new models. And I want to talk about, you know, backtesting. And what I mean by that is, is, is that, uh, you know, you get the comment from a lot of uh, investors, well, I've never met a bad backtest in my life. And then I said, well, if, would it be any better if I didn't show any of back tests? And they say, no, no, I want to see them. And then, and then I show a back test and then they'll say, well, you know, it doesn't matter what you do. I'm probably going to discount it by 50% as a rule of thumb, because, you know, whatever you showed me in the past is probably going to do half as well in the future. And maybe I might consider it if, if it's does half as well as what you've shown in the past. So based on, on those type of comments, which I'm sure everybody has heard, I guess is that what what do you think is necessary to convince someone that a uh, that you have a good back test, and what do you look for in a back test if you are sort of assessing a, an investor? Because because I think that ultimately I think that has a lot of value for a lot of uh, people who might be listening of how, how you would be, look at or view or what you consider as a good back test at, at a very high level. Because I know that there's a lot of nuances you can look into. Well, of course, we're super lucky um, because Rob has, I think, written about all of this in one of his many great books. So, Rob, um, what, what do you think about that? Two separate questions, really. One is, you know, how do you deal with people who say those silly things to you? And the second thing is, you know, what do you look for in a back test? I'm very fortunate not, not to be, you know, managing anyone's money apart from my own. So I just have to convince myself that my back tests are okay. And that's normally fairly straightforward, although I do sometimes run into problems if I'm in a bad mood. 
Um, so I'll, I'll probably go for the second question and hope that um, those of you who are still, you know, managing money can can deal with the first. Um, and, and and that you know, to be honest, when I when I look at a back test, I'm not necessarily looking for like a really good sharp ratio, right? And I think this is probably the difference between you know, well, ours, I suppose, as people who work with back tests all the time, and someone who's just being shown one as a kind of you know buy this product thing. Um, and uh, you know, there's, so there's lots of other things that to me are more important than that. So, for example. You know, if you told me you're running a trend following fund and I looked at your returns and you did really badly at times when trend following funds generally did really well, or vice versa, you know, did you did really well in periods and trend following funds have done badly, I'd have questions about, you know, exactly what it is that you were doing. And, you know, if it if it really is trend following, how come its correlation or its pattern of returns is, is so different? I'd also be looking at, you know, other distributional properties apart from just just, you know, just the straight out shower ratio. So I'd I'd be looking at the or looking at the actual risk as well. So, um, you know, would 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 if it look, if the risk is very high, for example, um, and you're you're trading futures, I might be a little bit concerned about the degree of leverage you're using. Um, whereas if, if you know if you're if you have kind of big upward movements because you're generally a person who's buying vol, um, I'd be less worried because the down I know the downside is kind of naturally more limited. I would be hoping to see statistics on things like correlation and costs and things like that. Um, you know, because at the end of the day. What I'm trying to sort of say is not necessarily is this widget the best widget that exists out that exists there. I'm, I'm that's a really hard question to answer just based on a back test, and it's probably dangerous to do that just based on a back test. I think you'd be quite naive to pick one manager over another purely because they they have a better back test, you know, or that the sharp ratio alone was better. But I would definitely pick one manager over another if they the back test is sharp looked a bit worse. But but you know there are other characteristics of the strategy that I expected to see and were there versus somebody who had, you know, this amazing account curve, but which bore no relation to what I'd expect. I'd love to actually hear, well, Jim for sure, but also either Katie, either Katie or, um, um, or Nick actually, because you probably in your model building also deal with this issue about backtesting. So maybe one of you first and then Jim. So, I mean, backtesting is, um, is the only tool we have to bring a hypothesis into data, right? And I think in itself is the curse as well. You know, we, we have a big team and we you know we look into those patterns and how we can systematize them. I think the first thing we have to do even before running a backtest is to build some discipline and awareness. And I know it sounds very theoretical, but you know, unless we call it out, we will all become genuinely biased by the natural temptation of just picking the best line. Whether that is a sharp or performance in the drawdown or whatever the characteristic we're after. Right, and I think unless we call it out and become conscious, it will not become second nature. So, you know, the extent to which we can make it a second nature to 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 our process of of researching, then I think it's a matter of hypothesis forming and testing, and again resisting temptation of looking into another result and then oh yeah, of course that happened and then obviously that happened and then oh it makes total sense. No, it doesn't make any sense. And I think that is the time when you do research that you say, okay, no, 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 now we're data mining or now we're entering into a territory that are just reading the data. And I think it's more of a culture build rather than, you know, how do we build a system or a research engine for us to conduct the research? So that's the first step. The second step is obviously end up, we end up having a backtest, right? So what do we do about it? And I'm, I'm going to quote some of the points that Rob made here. You know, we have to look into some stats. And by the way, something that is better on a backtest is not necessarily better on a forward-looking basis. And even more so, something that we have on a backtest that has no impact, it doesn't necessarily mean it shouldn't be there in the first place. 
Now, for example, some of the work we do is to put some uh, kind of last line of defense in concentration risk in some of our portfolios. And your other practice historically doesn't have any impact. But surely you know, if the extreme scenario occurs, in principle, you wouldn't be hit as much as you would have been, possibly at the expense of not deploying some extreme exposure that ends up being your way. But you know, those coin tosses, we'd rather not have. The last thing I would say is that in that cultural build that we, you know, we're bringing in the team, we're also trying to stress the way we think about methodologies and tests of methodologies. I'll give you one example. Uh, it's not in the trend space, but I think it was quite a nice example to showcase some of the work we've done recently. We're looking at some commodity curve strategies. You know, the classical, you know, buying the back end of the curve, shorting the front end of the curve, doing it across commodities and so on and so forth, kind of benefiting from, you know, the steepness in the curve in the front on the front. And there's this, this notion that, you know, the roll yield on the front of the curve is extremely expensive to maintain. So here came the hypothesis. If I short the front, do I always make money? Right? So then we said, okay, fine, let's run some sort of a Monte Carlo that tries to position itself across the curve at the random, in a random fashion, but always short the front. So really stressing the selection mechanism on the back and try to identify whether shorting the front is panacea and all the rest is just statistical fluke. Uh, so, you know, these are some of the analysis we try to bring forward, stressing the methodology, but also building the culture. I think the culture is the most important thing. Anything else just follows. Katie, over to you. Oh, you said all the good stuff, but I I agree pretty much 100% with you, all the things that you said. I think the other thing that we try to think about in addition to that is, you know, not being overconfident and also complexity is something that we're very concerned about. Because complexity is something that is much more akin to backtest bias. So trying to sort of fix a model and sort of be smarter than what you thought before is just tinkering oftentimes. So it's really about having that philosophical view of, you know, if, I'm always a little skeptical when someone comes in and says, I have the next best thing. And I said, well, you know, there's a lot of smart people out there doing this. So it seems to me like that is more likely going to be tinkering with your process. And so really sticking to a process and having a high amount of skepticism for change and complexity, I think is a very important part of the right, of a good systematic backtesting and, and, and research framework process. I think the, the most critical things, and Nick kind of alluded to this with the Monte Carlo simulations, is to try and remove path from the back test. You have to do simulations and uh, that, that allow for all scenarios to the extent that uh, outcomes depend on path, um, you know, and some strategies will work uh, because path, certain paths are more likely, that needs to be explicitly laid out in the data set that you're, you're managing so that that's well understood. Um, the second part is understanding the degrees of freedom of the strategy. So very being very explicit about what um, the strategy can or cannot do, how many factors it involves, uh, where where those play out, and and how those can be used potentially to manipulate outcomes. Um, those things have to be explicit when looking at a back test and well understood and statistically analyzed, not just on a some uh, historical data set. Yeah, I think so. I think I think the questions that you're getting are from people who who have had bad experiences with people presenting a lot of people presenting indices that were nonsensical, right? Or, or, or back to the data that's nonsensical. I, I think one of the, the, just to sensitize around a certain point, if somebody came to you and said, these are the stocks I would have bought 10 years ago, you'd laugh them out of the room, 
right? But but if you've been running a systematic strategy that is clearly codified for 10 years and you haven't changed it, and then you tell people this is what it would have looked like in the preceding 20 years, it's much more credible than if you come to them and say, you know, we just found the holy grail of sharp ratios and this is what we would have done if we'd been doing it over. So I think if you can link it to stability of the underlying strategy, I think the second thing I would do is show them what happens if you, if you, if you play with the parameters. Because what people are used to seeing is somebody goes into a room, they turn all the dials on this until it comes back with a sharp ratio of 1.5. They come out of the room and say, we found it. Show them, what if we take the dial here and turn it from 7 to 4, and that one from, 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 from 5 to 8, and we make dumb decisions in it? Does it still look close to what we're talking about, or is the back test so sensitive that you change one parameter at the margin or something in your notes. So, you know, when we, on the replication space, one of the things that, that ended up convincing people that it wasn't crazy was we could show, we'll pick the dumbest factor sets and see if they work. We'll pick, we'll pick, we'll pick timeframes that we think are highly suboptimal and see if they work. And if it works okay in those circumstances, then you're not, then you're starting with, it's okay, these are the judgments that we've made to make it better. That's, that's from, from being on the front lines. Okay, cool. So I'm going to ask a question, which is unfortunately something that I wanted to ask Rich about, because I think that uh, uh, since he's part of that small group of people um, who are defined themselves as classic trend, I think that is more, um, uh, it's one of the discussions point uh, we've had. But overall, my, my question or my thought is this thing about whether or not trend followers, but even I guess vol managers as well, whether we can afford to stand still in our research. And of course, we we know from some um, uh, of the classic uh, trend, uh, they say that they actually evolve by standing still um, because there are fewer and fewer of them. Um, but from my point of view, I um, I guess I have, I have an interesting seat um, because the firm I work for, I've been around for 49 years. And so we started out as what you probably would classify as a classic trend follower uh, today using volatility breakout systems as our signal generator. Um, but later in life, uh, about sort of uh, 15, 18 years ago, um, we started to evolve that uh, whole process. And of course, it was based on the evidence that uh, our research team could find. And so in one uh, sense, one thing we did was we added an extra sig signal generator to the, to the process and then later on, we also changed the whole risk management from going from a market-by-market -market approach, which is the classical approach, to this holistic approach of risk managing the whole portfolio using correlations and volatility and so on and so forth. And I, I guess what's, what's interesting for me is that I can, I can kind of see both uh, to some extent when I look inside the engine. I can see how how both of those approaches um, have have evolved uh, from some of the research data that I have access to. So I'm curious to know, and since um, and since we can't um, get uh, through to Rich right now, but let me throw it to you maybe, uh, Katie, to begin with, is this thing about research and, and whether in a strategy like trend following, for example, where you could say that we are, we are standing on shoulders of, of the pioneers in terms of the golden rules, but what what are your thoughts about this thing about um, research and and how much change is 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 too much change in in our research, so to speak? I love that question because 
it's one of the challenges that people often forget about our space is that it's really easy to replicate correlation, but not easy to replicate returns. Uh, what I mean by that is that you could take a simple moving average model and get very high correlation to the industry, but you don't want to invest in that. Um, so what that means is that investing in our space is about the details. It's about getting the details right, getting the risk management framework right, thinking through the small parts, not just the big overall strategy. Um, another thing for me that is also very important about a philosophical trend system is really building a system that will change as markets change over time. So yes, that means you're not going to be throwing in tons of new models, but you always need to be receptive to the idea that some of your models, that you might have more diversification if you think about this in different ways. So really the goal is parameter diversification and smoothing sort of the you know reliance on one thing that gives you that correlation but doesn't give you good returns risk adjusted. Um, and I think that's where we struggle because everyone says, well, I'll just use a moving average and then I get, you know, 90 something percent correlation. Good luck trading that in practice as opposed to um, I think the, the real sophistication is making sure you get all the details correct. I want to come to you, Jim, in a second because I want to hear your thoughts about uh, research. But I actually want to first go to to uh, Andrew um, because I think this is quite relevant in a sense also from from where you sit uh, looking into this industry, trying to replicate, so to speak, the, the sum of uh, all of this research, uh, so to speak. Um, and actually what Katie said about, well, you can get the correlation right, but doesn't mean you get the returns right. You kind of have to get both right. So I'd love to hear your thoughts. So one of the things I love about the space is I think the space does evolve over time. Uh, so we've looked at... at you know, we run our own internal simple trend following models. And part of the issue that we had with it was that we don't think that if we went back to 2005, these are necessarily the models we would have chosen at that time. You know, from a, I mean, in terms of what we do from a replication perspective, it's we're not trying to actually do what managed futures funds do. We're just basically betting on some short-term stability in the correlation structure of the market. That basically, you know, because when you think about diversification, and we believe that diversification helps enormously when you're running one of these funds. Um, but if you're looking at it in a short period of time over the past two or three or four weeks, all those 70 instruments are either going up or down or staying flat. And so when we looked at it from a replication perspective, the idea was basically how confident do we feel that those near-term correlations characteristics of the market will continue again over a short period of time. Um, and so it, it is a balancing act because we don't optimize around correlations. Uh, we are actually trying to, rock, opti we, it's, it's, it, it, look, all this stuff is a judgment call. And we were trying to find a way, we were more concerned about what we thought would be out of sample out, uh, performance relative to the underlying index. And, you know, again, but it wasn't, but all the nuances that Katie is describing and that you're describing in terms of the evolution of it, the reason we like what we do versus in the U.S., there's an ETF that uses a static trend-following model that really hasn't changed in a couple of decades. Is if you guys are all doing something, if you guys, if 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 the if the giants decide that the there's a better way to do this on a going-forward basis, and you evolve what you do, then a good replication of the space should adapt and follow what you're doing, as opposed to making a bet that you're going to be doing the same thing in ten years. 
Okay. Jim, uh, before we jump to the next topic, uh, what are your thoughts on this? Yeah, again, I'll give you a, a quickish answer here. So my view broadly is that markets are very much a voting machine in the short term. It has much more to do with flows and supply and demand um, in, in short time intervals. And, and that changes dramatically as market structure changes. And market structure is constantly evolving. So to to sit and, you know, somehow stick to models uh, from five years, 10 years, 20 years ago, um, where market structure is very different, I think is, is an incredibly flawed um, process. Um, you have to be constantly mindful of market structure and what's changing and how that, cha you know, changes the, the system. That said, the longer timeframes you go to, the more, the less the, uh, it's just some supply and demand on a short-term basis, the more it kind of reverts to the broader trends. Um, so I think time interval matters a lot. I think you want you want to not lose the core things that are that are important to um, kind of trend and strategy um, over longer time intervals. But over any any period uh, less than a couple of years or a year, I think you really have to be mindful of market structure um, and 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 evolving constantly. Okay, great. So now that we've been through all of us, uh, except for Rich, of course, due to technical problems, I wanted to throw out a quick question to everyone uh, and I'll call out who who I would like to to uh, answer this and this is literally something where it's like a 10 second answer uh, but I just wanted to sort of uh, uh, get your thoughts on that and it's a very simple question it's kind of the most important lesson uh, that you've learned from the year 2023 and if I could start with you Alan um, just a very quick answer to uh, what's the most important thing you've learned in 2023 well, it, yeah, it's it. I think you phrased it as learned or relearned, so um, it wasn't right. a new learning. But again, as an allocator around, you know, it was another year of dispersion and uh, the importance, from my perspective, of when selecting or allocating to managers of being diversified. You know, if you look at the performance of the industry, it's flat to slightly negative overall. But you know, managers plenty positive, plenty negatives. Some managers particularly challenged this year, but some doing well. So that so it reiterated the importance of uh, diversification in, in 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 terms of manager selection. And I think the second thing that that kind of came back to me as well is the the, the challenge of timing uh, performance or forecasting performance from the perspective of you know if we went back to the end of last year, coming on the back of a really strong year for trend following and managed futures. Looking at the macro environment, you could make the case for really, you know, a really compelling case for the strategy. Higher interest rates, also a tailwind for the strategy. But yet it was a tough year. And that's just part of the statistical fluctuation that you get with the strategy that you just have to accept. So while, you know, people will always ask you, well, what's the outlook? You always have to caveat that from the perspective of, yes, the outlook is positive or was positive and still is positive. But year to year, the, the, the fluctuations or will always be so great that 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 is very hard to to to, to kind of forecast on a on a kind of a short term, six month to twelve month time horizon what what returns will look like. So they're not new lessons, but certainly they were old lessons relearned uh, this year. All right, that was a long ten seconds. Um, so maybe we can do this a little bit quicker. Uh, Rob, anything particular you learned in twenty twenty three? Don't be cocky. I think March taught me again. That, that you know you can get kicked up the ass whenever you least expect it. The last time was in was Thanksgiving a couple of years ago. Same thing, you know. You think you think you you get hit a new high water mark and then bang you lose six seven eight percent in a day two days. So yeah. 
Okay, cool. Andrew? Um, I, I just how unpredictable the business is. I think if you'd gone to the beginning, end of 2022, um, going back to the point that I made earlier, you know, again, long-term trend looked unbeatable. And, and this year, a lot of the things that had been, you know, had, had, had cramped people's returns, et cetera, last year and had caused people to get whipsawed in other years are actually working quite well this year. So uh, in this space, it's, it's, you know, just year to year, we'll have different winners and losers. And, and uh, it's, it's hard to know who's going to be on the top. Sure. Jim, quick uh, thought on what you learned. Yeah, it'll be a, almost like a, a reference to what I just said before. Um, you know, early in the year, a lot of the signs uh, were there for uh, too much vol selling and a and a, and a potential um, extension risk. But this structured product uh, supply is something that I had not been as focused on before. And the more we dug in, the more we realized the volume and size and scale of what was happening there. That was a really illuminating thing for me and something. That, that always kind of teach you, you got to keep your eyes open for things that you're maybe not uh, thinking about historically that aren't in the data set and how market structure is changing. Sure. Nick, anything on your side in terms of uh, learning or do you know everything? I will say you, but in the, the one thing was just the deja vu of, um, of 2020, end of 2020. Um, at the time, we had a variety of clients coming and, and, and feeling the act of regret and putting some long vault trades because March was like the most recent experience. Guess what happened in 2021 and 2022? All those long vaults did not perform. And then this year we've seen clients coming back and say, I want trend. Again, another act of regret, but look what trend has done this year. So I think the point is when we look into the strategic allocations, we should be looking at those without necessarily acting as 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 regretting what happened, but rather just looking forward uh, and hedging all the outcomes. Great. Katie, thoughts on 2023? I think the biggest thing that I learned that was interesting in 2023 is we wrote this interesting paper that talked about the phases of of the bond trend. And in that paper during, it was a totally historical analysis, but this showed me how much history, even though it doesn't repeat, it rhymes, right? So this whole year, just looking for the flattener in the curve and looking for the bottom of the fixed income curve and paralleling that to how trend signals had done in history or hypothetical history, it was really interesting to see that there is really sort of a, psych a cycle of fixed income that we're involved in, that we're kind of seeing go from phase to phase. And so I think for me, that was really fascinating to, to learn sort of how history is actually sort of repeating itself, not exactly in the same incarnation, but sort of walking through that trade was, was very fascinating to me um, to see it from that perspective. Yeah, absolutely. Mark, what uh, what was your key takeaway from 2023? Right. Uh, I'm going to go to the esteemed uh, uh, investor, Yogi Berra, who said predictions are very hard, especially about the future. So, and I, I think that that's what we find out uh, every year in it. And in some sense, the reason why a lot of people like trend following, because at some level, as I said, that it's supposed to be at, to some degree non-predictive. So, so you, you say, I follow what the market is telling me. I'm not making a prediction. Many other strategies, you have to implicitly make an, uh, a prediction level. So if you're a value investor or if you're looking at valuations, you're making a prediction that they're going to meet and revert. So we have to always embrace non-predictability or understand predictability is hard. <laughs> For me, uh, the biggest takeaway was really just relearning uh, that a combination of stocks and trend following is such a powerful combination. 
I mean, just looking at two extremes, 2022 and 2023, I mean, they couldn't have been more different, but yet a simple 50-50 portfolio of those two assets or strategies uh, would have had positive returns in both years and combined, uh, they would have done uh, really well. So even as a practitioner and finding it really hard to embrace the stock part of that, uh, I'm truly hoping that uh, investors uh, will take that evidence as a good inspiration for diversifying their stock uh, portfolio with some trend. All right. In, in terms of um, other topics, we're going to go around as many as we can. Um, so, Katie, I'd love to hear what your second topic uh, that you brought along is. And um, let's see if we can add some answers to it. So I think the biggest thing that I've spent the last two or so years thinking about is fixed income. And a lot of this coming from, you know, we're trend followers. So we're always looking at trends and different horizons. And the interesting thing with the fixed income trend is it was a 40-year horizon in one direction. Um, and going through the pivot to a rising rate environment led us to talk a lot about very different things. One is we were very interested in when is trend falling going to be long? When is it going to be short? Um, in what environments are we going to, you know, what's the next phase? And we actually just have a paper that just came out that I think published today about sort of thinking about what's the next phase of the fixed income trade. So give some prefix to that. And then I'd love to hear my, you know, fellow uh, panelists here's um, thoughts on this is that we did this empirical study where we looked at um, how trend signals did during rising rate and falling rate environments and conditioned that also on the shape of the curve. And what was interesting with this is that when the yield curve was inverted, trend falling did very well being short and less well doing being long, um, and it was predominantly short. And then as the curve flattened out, it was much more mixed, and trend was still tended to be short, but the signals struggle. So it really sounds a lot like this year. Um, and as you got that flatter yield curve, uh, you started to see that pivot point to when are you going to be possibly long again? Um, and so I think the question that we're asking ourselves right now is sort of what is the next phase of that fixed income trade? So is we think it's a steeper yield curve, but of course there's a lot of ways to get to that steeper yield curve. Everyone in the marketplace tends to be very optimistic thinking, you know, we're going to get yield cut, we're going to get cuts and then, you know, we'll have this naturally nice uh, steep yield curve. I always think that there's usually a couple of things out there that people are missing or underestimating as a risk. Is it the fact that fixed income maybe has too much supply and that we can get actually that bottom of the long end of the curve at some point? Or are we going to go into a totally different phase? But I think from the trend perspective, the next natural progression is to get to that steeper curve. And I think the real macro question is, what gets us there and what is the exact shape of it? So I think um, that's what I've been thinking a lot about. And and I think it's a really good point for discussion. I think Rob has has something he wants to say, which is good. <laughs> yeah. And before before Rob jumps in, because I want to hear his uh, answer to that as well. I just want to I just want to mention that I actually heard on another podcast uh, in the last day or so uh, that apparently the Bank of America uh, survey of fund managers that just came out 
has the fund managers being more bullish, more long bonds than ever before in its history. And so that's very interesting. And then something else was raised, I think, in the same podcast, and that is whether or not there is a law out there that dictates how much funding the U.S. can do in the short end versus the long end, and whether or not Janet Yellen had were in breach of these rules and therefore had to shift much more the future funding into the long end, by the way. Anyways, this is just what I heard. Let's jump to Rob and get some... Um, some yeah, I'm not going to speculate on um, kind of what's going to drive the yield curve going forward because I don't really feel qualified to do that. But spookily, I did a very similar analysis to you, Katie, but about 11 years ago. Um, and um, the, you're right that the shape of the yield curve is important. Of course, that's because that affects the amount of carry that you're getting on your positions. So if the yield curve is very steep, then your longer end bonds are going to be getting more carry. And that means that you, you know, if you're long those bonds, you're getting that extra headwind from that return. But also, assuming that your trend signal is based on the total return series or what we'd call the back-adjusted price, it's a much cleaner and stronger signal. If you're trading carry separately as well as I do, then you'll get kind of a double helping of that. Uh, whereas, obviously, if the yield curve's flat, then the, the kind of carry component of the price isn't really doing very much. Um, and one thing that I, I did recently that's quite interesting is if you strip the carry out of a bunch of kind of futures total return series and look at both the behavior and profitability of trend following in those assets, a lot of it kind of disappears. So, um, you know, that kind of tailwind of extra carry on the long side is, is I agree, is, is a definitely an important factor. But as to where that's going to come from, over to you guys, because I've no idea. Yeah, actually, my topic will just dovetail right into this. So I think the, the most important thing when looking to the future is not to try and predict an outcome, but to try and predict the distribution of potential outcomes. Um, and I think, you know, Doing that is actually way easier. Not that it's easy, but it's way easier. Um, path, all kinds of things can happen between A and B, right? But understanding the forces at play and what that is likely to mean for the broad distribution is much you know, more straightforward to do. Um, from my perspective, we were able to do that, for example, um, you know, in, in 2020, by just realizing that populism had become a big thing and fiscal spending, there was likely to be a massive fiscal wave. That meant a lot of things, not just for higher rates, which is critical, um, as highlighted here, the most important thing, right? But it also is important to understanding the deglobalization trend and the coming conflicts that were coming. We were out there very publicly saying in 2020 that expect some big geopolitical, global, economic, and hot war to come. I mean, that, people think that was an idiosyncratic thing. It's not idiosyncratic when you look at the pressures and understand the risks and understand the, the, the probabilities uh, and pressures. Um, it's all about incentives, as we all know. And if you start to understand those incentives better based on, on broad structures, you can really model distribution better. So to that end, you know, what are those distributions like going forward? What might that mean for trend? What might that mean for volatility? Um, you know, our view is, is that this struck this pressure that we're seeing that is more recent is a regime change um is this and at the core of it is this populism this desire to fix inequality which has been created by monetary policy for 40 years that is driven by a political reality by millennials on down um and a desire with who are at 40 percent of the wealth creation household formation as i've stated many times before baby boomers right 
And that simple reality, which seems like such a simple little thing, is so critical. Because at the end of the day, that drives a demand push structural economy. You, and, it, and it puts the Federal Reserve in a box. It does no longer allows monetary policy to be dominant. That simple fact changes the distribution of outcomes for so many assets in so many ways. And we saw that in 2022. And in the context of that, you still see what we're seeing now in, in 2023, which are cyclical uh, at, at, you know, pressures against that um, within a secular trend. And so if you start to understand this, where we are secularly in a regime change and what that means broadly, and then you understand the cyclical pressures and the reaction function of it, then you can begin to model. So our view is broadly that 2023 is a counter trend year into a much bigger, broader trend. Um, and, and I think that will hopefully be good for, for trend following broadly, given that 2023 is, you know, again, a challenging year. I think 2022 is more the core of what, where, where the broad trend will be. Um, I think that'll also mean more short uh, for volatility, more, much like we saw in the 70s, more recessions, uh, you know, more volatile, um, you know, in, in seeing a lot more um, geopolitical conflicts, a lot more uh, currency issues, um, a lot more um, cross-national commodity and, um, you know, other other pressures where entities are, are battling and, and in competition. And so for me, nobody's really talking about geopolitical uh, issues this year because narrative follows price. Um, but the reality is that's only gotten hotter in a lot of ways. Obviously, Israel, Gaza, what we're seeing there with Iran coming into the fray, I think is, um, and, you know, and, and, and working with Russia and China behind the scenes as a second front. I think that's something that's going to be way more important in 2023. And I think price and volatility uh, amidst a, a recession um, and the reignition of inflation, which I think will likely come uh, later next year, I think are all very important trends that will really um, uh, be be critical and important in the coming year. Okay, great. So maybe we'll just have a, a sort of a more fluent uh, conversation as uh, as we sort of slowly, slowly start to to wrap up uh, the final uh, part. We have another thirty minutes or so. So I don't know whether Jim, you want to throw out another topic or uh, otherwise, um, Alan. Uh, what what are your thoughts, Jim? Do you want? Yeah, I mean, I think I, I think we haven't talked. Uh, you know, we're talking systematic trend following. I'd love to kind of discuss a little bit more uh, geopolitics for a second, see if anybody wants to dive in and and, and opine. But uh, you know, I'm really really curious to see uh, what other people think about uh, what's going on in emerging markets, Japan. Um, you know, leave it open here. Uh, what are the what are the things that people have on their radar as the biggest risk for the year, and things that they may be um, thinking about as they're modeling 2024. Yeah, I'd love to see who raised their hand. And in, and while they think about that, I will say to you, uh, Jim, uh, that I can't wait for the first conversation we're going to release uh, in the, well, maybe not the first one in the new year, because that's going to be you and I alone, but uh, maybe the second or third, which where we're going to be speaking to uh, David Dredge. And I think he is someone who's unique, uniquely positioned because he's based out in Asia and has a clear focus uh, on Japan and what's changing out there. And, uh, of course, um, this will have massive effect, uh, not least because of people using the yen um, so heavily uh, in their funding uh, and so on and so forth. Andrew, you have a thought on this? Yeah, I, I guess, I mean, you know, back to your point about the distribution of outcomes, the distribution of outcomes seem really wide to me. Um, and, I, you know, I, occasionally people get asked, 
uh, or ask me questions about, you know, where do you think the S&P is going to go? Where do you think interest rates are going to go? And I, 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 I fight it and I fight it and fight it. And then I finally throw out an opinion because I don't think my opinion has a much predictive value. But, but uh, you know, about a year ago, um, I got asked where you thought the S&P, you know, S&P was going to be. And I said, look, we have no idea. It could be down 20% from here. It could be up 50% from here in a year. Um, and I got asked recently about interest rates. And my personal view is interest rates are going to stay high for all the structural reasons you describe. Um, but we could have deflation next year. People have not been wrong by a little bit on these predictions. And if I encourage you guys to look at Jim Bianco did this incredible chart of short-term interest rates since 2010. And it shows where interest rates went and where the markets thought they were going over the course of the next year. And it was just, I mean, you wouldn't give a penny to anybody making these predictions. Um, and so... You know, I, I'm a perennial optimist, but when I look at the world today, it feels really dark. I mean, it feels like we have an entire generation of people whose brains have been melted by social media, that we have a profound changes in the geopolitical structure where there seem to be common agreement on certain things that no longer exist anymore. So, you know, I think we're, we're looking at a world today where we've had, I think, I think you know, uh, uh, Katie mentioned this point earlier about we keep having these things that just don't feel like they're sitting on a bell curve. You know, we have a land war in Eastern Europe. We have the potential for war in the Middle East. We have we have we have taken kind of a certain level of stability in the world for granted for since World War II, essentially. And and uh, so I don't know whether that's good or bad for managed futures. I my my view on and for trend falling, my view on the Fed last year was they finally ripped the, the boot off, and that was going to in a sense they had flipped from wanting to suppress volatility and a fear of ending up in being like Japan to the fear of being Arthur Burns. And, and that kind of changed the calculus. But, um, but like, look at the past six weeks. I mean, trend following has walked in, been standing underneath the propeller for, um, for, for six weeks. And, and so um, I just, I think volatility is going to be the name of the game. And, and those probability, those, those expected outcomes are going to be very wide. Yeah, I'd love to hear maybe also your thoughts, Alan. But before I do, I'll throw something a little bit your way. Um, also, uh, the way of Nick, but I know he's not going to comment on this particular part. Um, and that is uh, another thing that actually, uh, Jim, uh, we should raise with with David Dredge. I think he put in his one of his recent uh, wonderful newsletters a plot uh, from the Bank of England where they have like, I don't know, 800 years worth of uh, inflation data and volatility, and they group it together in 20 year, blocks of 20 years. And there's like one block that has hardly any inflation and very little volatility, and it's like a standout plot, and it's the period from 1997 to 2016. Everything else is just completely different. So... This thing about uh, that we may be looking back, and I, I think that's a, maybe uh, something we we will do, and and about the last kind of decade or two, saying that was the odd one out. I think that is so true, uh, but of course not knowing what the future will hold. Uh, but Alan, since you uh, also do a lot of the global macro uh, conversations on the podcast, um, well, what are your thoughts on this? Yeah, no, I've seen that chart from the Bank of England, and yeah, it basically shows what an outlier the last. 20 years have been in terms of inflation being on target and not fluctuating much around the target. And historically, we've seen much more variation um, in in inflation. So I think, I mean, I agree with what's been said. The, the way I would summarize it is, I mean, if you look at last year 
How many articles did we see last year about the end of 6040 and the need for diversification and how the world is going to be very different going forward? And then we have a big rebound in the S&P this year and suddenly you're not reading about the end of the 6040 so much anymore and everybody seems to be okay. You know, last year was a year where if you go back to Jackson Hole of 2022, all the policymakers are saying, oh, the world is going to be really volatile going forward and we've got these structural supply constraints. And then you get a year where inflation comes down and everybody forgets about these points that were supposed to be kind of structural impediments for, for the global economy for the next few years. So I do I do think it is a question of, you know, is 20, which is the outlier? Is 2022 the outlier or is 2023 the outlier? And, you know, if you go back a couple of years, Ray Dalio wrote a, wrote a piece where he looked at every decade over the last kind of back to the 1920s. And, you know, very often at the end of the decade, you'll get a change in, in, in the kind of the environment. So obviously the 2010s was very much low inflation, stable GDP at a low level, QE, low rates. Now we're into a new period of, I think, more volatile conditions. But 2022, and, and sorry, his point was within those 10 year periods, you will always get one or two years that are against the kind of trend. So my own personal view is that this the 2023 will probably be the outlier in terms of the the Goldilocks disinflationary period coming back and that people are suddenly uh, forgetting about all of those structural kind of um, headwinds that, that policymakers pointed to last year in relation to supply chains and, and nearshoring and all of uh, deglobalization, all of the things that we think might push up inflation and make it stickier over time. But, you know, it's... it's uh, uh, Ironically, I would say in terms of how this impacts the bond trade and managed futures, if we're going back to the old world, like the 2010 period, there's going to be an enormous bond rally for the next two years, which would be great for managed futures, uh, I would guess. Um, but then probably maybe beyond that, it could be a bit more challenging. Whereas if we're in the new environment, you know, it's probably going to be a bit more choppy around bonds for the next uh, 6 to 12 months or 18 months. But you will see bigger trends over the next decade. So I'd be more in that uh, camp. But even if if you're pessimistic uh, on on that outlook and think actually the, the world's going to revert, you know, bond yields would fall a lot more, and there'd be a big trend there as well in the short term. So I think there are positives to be taken from from both scenarios. But I, I I'm more in the camp of 2023 may prove to be the outlier in terms of being such a positive Goldilocks type scenario. Yeah, Jim. Yeah, so I would um, I would actually not take them as separate years. I'd take them together and look at them and say, hey, what does this look like? And it looks exactly like the data you see for the 10 to actually the 14 years from 68 to 82 when we had structural inflation, yet cyclical downturns. You get significant short-term volatility. There is a lot of uh, rotation and particularly FX and rates and precious metals. You get dramatic volatility, way higher than the other regimes, but the market goes nowhere. Uh, in nominal terms, and we live in a world of nominal illusion, right? In the meantime, we've had inflation for two years, right? Where has the market really gone? The market's really in real terms down about 20% um, over two years. And so this is what happens 
if you fast forward, if you go to the 6882 market, went nowhere for 14 years, the S&P did. You had dramatic short-term volatility, dramatic recessions. You had multiple 40% declines, multiple, many 75% rallies, but long-term vol got demolished and short-term vol actually was higher than normal. So it's a very, actually fits exactly the distribution you'd expect given the the model we're seeing. So I think it's important to kind of back up and, and, and look at the bigger picture sometimes and not just look month to month, year to year. Um, and, and really see what regime we're in. Rob, I was going to jump to you um, because you um, you stole from the others in terms of topics in uh, you know uh, in in the first uh, part of our conversation. Uh, so maybe you found some good one, uh, some more good ones. Uh, yeah. I, well, I feel is um, that I should um, you know maybe do some role playing here and pretend to be a classical trend follower as we due to technical difficulties, if our classical trend follower has been silenced. Although some might say it's a conspiracy, and actually, you know, that we've done this deliberately. But there we go. Um, so I'm gonna I'm gonna steal one of uh, Rich's topics, um, but actually something that's quite close to my own heart as well, which is is diversification. Um, so I think one of the things, one of the few things that, that I agree with with these guys is that um, measuring diversification with with a kind of linear measure of correlation really underestimates what you can actually get with a non-linear strategy like trend following, or for that matter, you know, something else that's long gamma, like, like buying vol, I suppose, although not, that's not really my bag. Um, so, um, you know, if we are in, in this sort of weird new world that we were unable to kind of perhaps articulate or describe or forecast, uh, you know, and it's, it's sort of different from what we've had, uh, you know, we haven't got this, this lovely headwind of, um, tailwind of, you know, a bond bull market behind us, for example. Is, is diversification, you know, really the, the, the kind of thing that, that everyone should be focusing on, you know, um, is, is this, this, you know, in this weird regime where we can't rely on our kind of traditional ways of making money, should we just be going all out for diversification, you know, alternative markets, just throwing equities, you know, big, dare I say Bitcoin, just throwing everything into the, into the, the big bag and, and hoping for the best or, or, uh, you know, is, is the value of diversification what it's always been and it's not really dependent on the, the regime that you're in. Okay, so I'd love to hear um, both uh, from Nick and Mark uh, on 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 this one, and anyone else who wants to jump in afterwards. But uh, Nick, uh, I know you do have some exposure to alternative markets uh, in some of your portfolios. What are, what are what are your thoughts on diversification in general? I mean, I'm looking at diversification, I guess, in, in in Rob's question, in two ways, right? How we think about diversification when we build a portfolio of alternatives, but also how we you know combine that with uh, more classical allocation portfolios, right? So there's certainly an argument to be made with regards to diversification and the value of adding a few more assets. And obviously they're much more costly and you know how you manage liquidity. And obviously if they're not liquid enough, you wouldn't trade too much of it. So then we might not have the benefit that we thought we would have in the first place. I mean, frankly, if I were to kind of pivot slightly without changing the gist of the question, and if I were to make almost like a mental jump to, um, um, I guess a radical point, like. We've had the 60-40 being, I guess, the pinnacle of asset allocation for decades, right? And 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 Jem mentioned the same thing. And when we look into alternatives, we always think about a complement to 60-40. How about we replace the 60-40? And I know that's quite big, right? But you know, what is 60-40 at the end of the day? It's a combination of two themes that historically have delivered the two more traditional rewarded premium, that being growth risk and storing your money for a, you know, for a longer period, therefore getting the term premium. And byproduct of that, with the anchored inflation, you had like the diversification that played out quite nicely on the downside. 
And what's the key risk? Well, inflation rising and then equity bond correlation skyrocketing. So there comes a point that diversification is key, but it's not about how we manage an alternative allocation. It's how we put that next to us allocation or possibly start thinking about replacing it, right? Because ultimately, if it's about growth risk, well, we can achieve that by selling volatility in a way, in a much more concise manner, reducing the spot movements. Or we can do, I don't know, linear carry. And then you have trend following, not only to capture the opportunistic moves in the market, but also help when equity bond correlation spikes. So I would think of those alternative strategies, however we construct them, to a certain extent in a diversified format. So again, to, to, to Rob's point, we have to be very thoughtful, and I'm personally like a big believer, not of just diversification, but prudent risk management in how we build those portfolios. But ultimately, that's the radical point I'm going to leave you with, right? Is it about complementing 60-40 or really reshaping how we think about it on a forward-looking basis? So big question mark here. I don't have a good answer. There you are. Maybe Mark does. I don't have a, uh, an answer, but I want to go back to this geopolitical issue because it's a, it's always fun to have geopolitical discussions, but at the same time, this is that I, we have we have joke in a lot of our investment meetings with my partners. We sort of say like, you can't use the word feelings. Feelings are banned. So I always sort of think about as systematic managers, what we're really thinking about is you know, there's two views. One is, is that you could say, what we want to try to do is identify regimes. Ide uh, regime ide identification could be in, a, in like in a machine learning, it could be supervised or unsupervised. Supervised, you'd say like, okay, uh, this is where we are in the business cycle. Uh, and here's what should happen if we're in this regime. It could be unsupervised. You say like, well, I'm looking at data and said the data seems to change to tell me I'm in a different regime. But ultimately, then the question comes for a model builder, is that do you care whether we're in a different regime? Uh, now, some would sort of say that uh, I'm regime agnostic, you know, that it doesn't matter what my regime, because my models do what they do. And it, whether you say I'm in this point of the business cycle, or if I have this geopolitical risk, or this event is going on, I'm indifferent because my models sort of uh, just you know, run no matter what, because, you know, it doesn't sort of incorporate regime. The other view is to sort of say like, well, I want to be regime dependent. Okay. If the shape of the yield curve has changed, I might change my behavior. If let's say I'm a different point in the business cycle, I might change the weights of my exposure. If I'm in a different type of regime, I might do something different. So the real question comes from a systematic manager is, is that are you regime agnostic or are you regime dependent? And if you're in either one of those, how do you incorporate that in models? And so I don't have the answer because that's why I'm asking you and, I, and that's why we're on a panel. But I said so that's the way I sort of frame the problem. Andrew, um, you get the last word on this topic and then we'll finish off with a quick round of outrageous uh, predictions. Sure. Well, I, I mean, I, I just sort of, I guess, to respond to... to um, to both things. I mean, the, uh, I don't think, I think the evidence is that it's incredibly hard to predict what regime we're in. And even if you get the regime right, you get the macro call right, figuring out how to make money off it is, <laughs> I think this, uh, you go back to another lesson of this year. You know, if you nailed that, uh, I mean, I know guys who said, all right, 
we're basically buying value stocks on a, on the thesis that interest rates are going to go up, interest rates go up, and value stocks get killed because AI comes out of nowhere. Um, but I think I think just think in terms of the broader Mac managed future space and and going back to what Nick was saying, this change in correlations in stocks and bonds, if it persists, and AQR and others have put out I think pretty strong evidence that if inflation stays above you know maybe two and a half percent, you're likely to have positive correlations between stocks and bonds. That's an earthquake across the asset management industry because the whole model of diversification, diversification was so easy. The, the, the rolling standard deviation of a 60-40 portfolio in the U.S. by the mid-2010s was 4%. The Sharpe ratio was well north of 1%. It outperformed 98.5% of hedge funds over the course of the decade. So, but, but the underlying assumption was that stock and bonds would, correlations would remain negative. And so when people built their asset allocation models, the easiest thing for them to do was to say, okay, I've got equities over here, and then I'm going to add a little bit of private equity because it's kind of close to that. And I'll expand into EM, I'll do other things. But you basically had, you had two legs of an asset allocation stool. The flip in correlation means that everything's converged. So we have this pithy expression, um, which we coined back in 2022, that, that then at a time like that, when everything is going down, you have the sea of red across your portfolio. It feels like the correlation of everything goes to one, managed futures is this beautiful beacon of green. Right. And and in September, that was true. In October, it was true. We are a nasty red blotch in a sea of green this month or the, over, over the past six weeks. So I think I think the the key, though, is that fast forwarding to five years, the guys that we talk about, the allocators who are um, who are going to look good in five years are the ones who embrace the idea that this core tenet of diversification has changed. And whether you throw out 60-40 and say, I don't need bonds anymore because they're not hedging and I'm just going to take equity risk, or whether you go to a 50-30-20 model or you look for other sorts of diversification, the vol on a 60-40 portfolio is more than double what it was a few years ago. And so clients and institutions that have been promised a smooth ride are, are not getting it. And that's where I think managed futures is almost uniquely positioned to, 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 to serve as a vol dampener because of its long-term characteristics. Great, Andrew. Appreciate it. All right. Well, we're going to wrap up this uh, epic conversation uh, that we've had and uh, that people have listened to uh, in the last couple of weeks uh, with a quick fire round, just in terms of some outrageous predictions for 2024. And I'm going to jump and start with you, Rob. Uh, what are your What is your outrageous prediction for 2024? Uh, my outrageous prediction is that I will indeed turn to the dark side and become a classic trend follower. Okay, that is outrageous, actually. Alan, what what are your what's your outrageous prediction? Mine is uh, it's a market forecast, and maybe maybe not so outrageous the way things are going. But I'd say ten year yields to trade below three percent next year, but and above five percent by the end of the year. Okay, nice. Uh, Andrew, what are your what is your outrageous prediction? I, I think I think we, we'll, we'll realize by early next year that people have no idea where we're going. <laughs> that's, that the, that we're tearing up a lot of old playbooks, and and uh, maybe it's not outrageous given what's happened, but um, I think I think we are seeing a a, a recognition that uh, macroeconomic forecasting is is not having a doing very well for us. Fair enough. Jim, I'm sure you might have some outrageous predictions since we speak a lot about these things. I have two, but Alan kind of stole one of mine. I was actually going to say trades down to three and a half and then gets above 6%. 
by the end of the year. So that's pretty outrageous uh, given the current uh, assumptions. And in the process of that, the curve actually steepens. 10-year yields uh, actually go higher eventually with lower short-term yields. Um, and then the second one, China starts moving uh, on Taiwan at the end of the year. Wow. Well, Nick, can you top that with your outrageous yeah, predictions? I have two different points on prediction, if I may. Number one, okay, so there's a very nice paper by Tetlock called Super Forecasting. It basically says when people make predictions, they're actually lacking two important points. Number one, the time horizon. Thanks for setting at least the time horizon right next year. Uh, but second one, not actually being checked regularly on their predictions. So the first thing we have to do actually get here in a year from today and actually see whether those predictions got right. The second thing I'm going to say is that I wrote a paper about four years ago basically saying that when we try to time or make a prediction, what we have to not forget is the base rate. If it's a coin toss, 50% chance point something is enough to get us in a better place. But when we're talking about investments, and I'm thinking about investments more than, than macro in, in a particular way, these are all like high sharp ratio strategies. In other words, the hit ratio of just holding them is 60, 70%, whatever. You can work it out, right? So my point would be, it's hard to even call the shots. I'll just go for diversification on this one. I'm not going to make any call because I think 2022 and 2023 got everything wrong um, in, in a particular way. So that's these are the two points that I have. Great stuff. Katie, what is your outrageous predictions for next year? Oh, I definitely got myself in the corner saying 6% this year. So um, we did get 5%. I do kind of agree the outrageous call would be that we did see that massive steepener later next year at some point. So I think my guess is that we're going to see a steepener, but I'm going to be open to the range of possibilities of how steep that steepener is and 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 um, exactly how how that occurs. Good stuff. Well, Mark, what uh, what is your big outrageous predictions for 2024? Well, the important point on making an outrageous prediction is make sure that it's going to be very hard for a measure so I could still be correct at the end of next year. And so, so I'll say something that 2024 will be the year that debt matters. In a sense, this is that uh, supply of debt and debt, especially in the government side around the world, is going to have an appreciable impact in a way that we haven't seen. Now, of course, how you measure that in, uh, you know, and, and rates and such will be is, is fairly difficult. So, so I could say debt matters, and and next year I could assure you that I could come back and say my my prediction is probably true, but I won't won't say how we'll get there or what that means. <laughs> All right, good stuff. Well, that kind of leaves me with uh, the last uh, outrageous predictions. I have two. Uh, two very different one. Uh, one is that neither Joe Biden nor Donald Trump will be part of the U.S. election, probably for different reasons. And the second one is that DBMF will start to inflation adjust their low fixed management fee to cover the cost of inflation. There we are. We'll see if any of those um, <laughs> come true. And we'll have to go back next year in, uh, in our session in a year's time to see if anyone got close to our outrageous predictions. That is it for part two of our 2023 year-end special group conversation. We hope that you enjoyed it. And if you did, 
perhaps as a sign of appreciation to all of my co-hosts, you could take five minutes of your time and go to Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon, or wherever you listen to your podcast and leave us a rating and review. This will mean a lot to us. And while you're there, make sure you follow the podcast as this is also very helpful for us to grow the show. And if you want to receive my weekly newsletter, just head over to toptradersonplug.com forward slash TTU dash news. From all of us at Top Traders Unplugged, thank you so much for listening. We look forward to being back with you next week for our regular weekly conversation and where I will kick off the year with Jim, what I'm sure will be a much anticipated conversation by many of you. If you want Jim to tackle some of your questions or if you have suggestions for topics, you can, as always, email them to me at info at toptradersonplugged.com. Until then, Happy New Year and take care of yourself and take care of each other. Thanks for listening to the Systematic Investor Podcast Series. If you enjoy this series, go on over to iTunes and leave an honest rating and review. And be sure to listen to all the other episodes from Top Traders Unplugged. If you have questions about systematic investing, send us an email with the word question in the subject line to info at toptradersunplugged.com and we'll try to get it on the show. And remember, all the discussion that we have about investment performance is about the past, and past performance does not guarantee or even infer anything about future performance. Also understand that there's a significant risk of financial loss with all investment strategies, and you need to request and understand the specific risks from the investment manager about their products before you make investment decisions. Thanks for spending some of your valuable time with us, and we'll see you on the next episode of The Systematic Investor.